2: the Santa Monica Review and the 2013 launch party. Yes. And it's nice to see this room filled on a Friday night with so many literary friends. And so to kick us off, please welcome the editor Andrew Tonkovich Thank you, Noel. Uh, there is uh, wine and cheese and other goodies. Uh, here's my remarks. Welcome. <laughs> I'm stealing a trope tonight from one of my favorite singer-songwriter activists, Billy Bragg, the folk punk troubadour. I'm confident uh, that this audience knows what a trope is and perhaps even welcomes a trope or two on a Friday night at a hipster, independent literary bookstore here in uh, Los Feliz, California, USA. Thank you, Skylight Books. We really appreciate it. Uh, Billy divides his loyal audience into peanut butter styles, the crunchies and the smoothies. And I don't want to pigeonhole you or the readers tonight. All of you are versatile, eclectic, accomplished authors and readers, but I am thinking that the people who showed up for this event, and I including myself, are the crunchy style of Santa Monica Review readers. The underground, the avant-garde, the dark and difficult ones who welcome a bit of subversion, a mild if pleasing whipping, a metafictional or political or linguistic or psychological puzzle, still with all the emotional an artistic wallop required of all good literature. Before I introduce our first of three terrifically wise and wise guy readers, I'd like to thank the following: Santa Monica College, our patron and booster and defender there, named Don Gerard, designer Mingye Wei, Christine Toby, Linda Sullivan, and Lisa Alvarez, with whom I'm celebrating 30 years in December. Lucky guy and I just noticed him uh, walk in uh, tall, pale, and handsome Jim Crusoe, the founder of the Santa Monica Review, (laughs) novelist, poet, all around good egg, teacher, mentor. Um, Please, please, please buy a book or a magazine or a lot of them tonight because uh, it is a good and necessary thing to do, crunchy or smooth. Uh, here at Skylight Books. Here we go, folks. G.C. Cunningham arrives in the lower case. I had silly me never heard of him or his work. He sent me a story which I loved, a difficult affecting unshyly political long, long short story. I recall responding satisfyingly using perhaps those very adjectives and accepting the story Responding to that, he sent me another story about which I can say only that it is even more so mean, funny, dark, and giddy making. So, yes, I published not one but two short stories by this strange fellow, and I would have, don't tell him. Uh, Probably published a third. Such a good mood he uh, put me in. He uh, is a UCLA graduate, lives in LA, sometimes work in film post-production. I don't even know what that is, but... Sometimes in Birmingham, Alabama, he's been in Bat City Review, Cut Bank, Denver Quarterly, Fiction International, uh, online at Potomac Review and McSweeney's, and the uh, shorter of the two pieces, my first Marine Corps essay, uh, the story about which I expect uh, you will... uh, very much appreciate, and perhaps has gotten him some hate mail, won second place in Fringe's 2012 Flash Fiction Contest, judged by one of our other favorite nuts, Steve Allman. So good for him. Here's G.C. Cunningham.
0: Thank you. Thank you, can you hear me? My first Marine Corps essay. As I learned from our instructor at MASP, Military Academic Skills Program, it is good to have an antidote for introduction to your essay. So here it is. Why don't they have Walmarts in Afghanistan? Because there's a target on every corner. (laughs) LOL. Laugh out loud. But for real. There is 418 U.S. killed last year and a huge 4,000 Taliban, lots of dead on the ground, so this bridges my topic. The topic is the first step of any essay. My instructor at MASP suggested to write what got us the most fame on YouTube. That was a good idea. The topic will define my purpose, which is our sniper squad peed or more proper urinated on some dead dudes, Hadjis as we call them. This was in Helmand Province. The next part states the point of the essay, the why. Yes, why we peed or more proper urinated. Well, there were many reasons for peeing on a dead haji. I will show in the body paragraphs, which is my main points as informed by our instructor at MASP. Number one, we had to pee very badly i can't speak for everybody but dog i had to go bad if i didn't have to go i would not be on that video but it was war men have to pee in war as in civil lives the main point is we didn't have no midl's modular initial deployment latrines you peed wherever usually behind a rock and usually i aimed at one of those giant ass beetles number two Everybody else peed on them. In my sniper squad, this definably was not the first time we peed on Taliban. Many times we peed on them, even when they was way healthy. Once we cuffed a Taliban dude under the toilet seat in our, in our MIDL, we slided him in with a cleanout bin. He cussed an American every time we peed, so I can swear he was not dead. Number three, we had just killed them, a celebration of skills. Me, eight balls, Need for Speed, Payback, and TSOM, the sound of Memphis, had just took out these Taliban from about a quarter mile with our good old 7.62mm M485s. It's not easy to shoot from a quarter mile with sweat in your eyes and 130 degrees of hell and squinting through a SSDS viewfinder. it's not like we have a case of Coors afterward, like those Pogues in FOB, Forward Operating Base. Repeating was kind of a toast to America and our freedoms. We took time to smell the flowers. A couple of Hajis might have escaped, but we cleared the area, Semper Fi. Four, unity of our fighting force. Doing things together, as always, gives unity, such as group ur- urination. Five, also payback for Halo. The day before our piss video, Halo got wasted. He was way cool, he was on point ahead of me, and I almost got choked when his forearm blasted back in my Adam's apple. I was dizzy and mad as hell until I saw his arm wasn't attached. He got vaporized from an IED, score one for Haji. Then came our turn to pay back Halo, so peeing on them was like also an extra point for us. Six, we were on video, our bad. 8-Ball started taping, and it was hard to do something not too boring, so we just did like they ask on Facebook, what's on your mind? A little something for our screensaver, maybe, and remind us of the glory days. Need for Speed was going to post it on his Marine Signals Singles page for the ladies, but sometimes our internet was slow as fuck. In summary, I would like to re- not repeat too much as informed by our instructor at MASP and show that we just did something. All animals are endowed by their creator, the natural act of men relieving themselves in service of their country. I end with an antidote again. What's the Taliban's favorite recruit line? Be Allah you can be. LOL. Specialist 5, name withheld pending investigation, Camp Lejeune, North Carolina. Thank you. Um, that piece is in the the current issue of Santa Monica Review. And uh, I also have another story in there called The First Flight, but it's a, it's a little long, and I'm not going to read that one tonight. But I'm going to read another flash fiction. Uh, this is actually online at Uh And uh, it was inspired by my wife, who's also a writer. It's called... It's called, Rules for a Loving Couple Who Write at Home. (laughs) Rule one, morning greetings should be quick. Don't go on tangents about last night's dream and trample fresh ideas that crystallize in dawn's light. Morning revelations have the lifespan of snowflakes. Forget craft, visions must be catered to. Note on rule one. Under no circumstances mention the coverage terminology, we must learn to replace our existing car insurance. Rule two. All post-morning greetings should be kept to brief utterances, nothing more than cordial nods or supportive smiles, as any two colleagues crossing the path in the office might do. Note on rule two, this is no time to overreact to a terse greeting. If I'm blunt, I don't mean to be. I'm working on perspective, first person plural, omniscient, untrustworthy, I cannot see you. You may be my sister, plumber, neighbor, a departed person, or some monster I've worked for clawing into short-term memory, reincarnating as my antagonist. Rule three, respect the closed door. If you open the door, and I'm unable to lift my fingers from the keyboard unless you're bleeding, I will say, Let me get back to you. I'm riding the wild sea lion. This is my signal to gently pull the door shut. If you slam it, violation of rule three. If truly an emergency, say, something catastrophic demands your presence, I will take a break. Note on rule three. Should we communicate? Yes, indirectly. Eons ago, when we were unfathomably young and living in our first apartment, we came to realize that strategic bits of data, household thoughts, were a cornerstone of cohabitation and needed a corporeal posting while the better half was on the toilet, or lounging in that crappy backyard we shared with six other renters. It being Christmas, you unswaddled a spanking new Fisher-Price magnetic scribe for kids the doodler. Now doodle pro changing with times, maturing with our bodies. Doodle pro still works. It's not electronic. No need to halt my wordpress processing of compelling dialogue, which as writers we know is forgery, to announce you're heading to the gym. Let's face it, you're not heading. You're going to pee. You may check the internet once more, walk to the car, forget something and come back. Maybe skip it altogether and knock on my door to explain your reasoning. Why? At day jobs in the city we never abandon ourselves to that mad, codependent love that we've found so snidely amusing in others. Take Roger, my co-worker, whose lonely partner rings ten times before lunch. We call for necessity to coordinate evening TV, a night at House of Blues, that looming weekend reserved for imprisonment at your parents' condo. We don't call the moment we leave our cubicle for a smoke. We don't smoke, but a point is made. Why not consider our home as a kind of fluorescent, rich office building overlooking the 134 Tarzana, Exit. Another note on rule three, don't get me wrong. I cherish your gym time. Mind is body, you knew this before I did. You know more now because I'm not currently enrolled in an establishment like Curbs, which I understand is for women. If I, if I emerge from my writing space and doodle pro says you're working out at 2:10 p.m., that's all I need. Comforted in knowing you're sweating and firming for writing longevity. I will know where to find you if your mother breaks a hip tripping over her trio of Jack Russells. <laughs> Final note on rule three, I realize young people are laughing Snickering at our dependence on an embarrassingly undigital doodle pro fuck them look who's flying through a scion Windshield typing on Facebook like my grandpa with two thumbs and jacking up the freeway death toll They're crowning banal monkey speak preserved on a schoolmates motorola chip I, I don't go for incessant beeping alerts when I compose fretting over which room or code or car I left the smartphone in my final testament will tower over these lazy Unsociables and etch the lasting dreams of our sad analog generation. Special note, special supplementary note about Kitchen Nook. The absence of writing material does not mean we are merely eating. If one writer approaches, the other should raise his or her hand to indicate presence of a creative space. (laughs) And finally, rule four. Don't get sucked into the gravitational pull of my bullshit when I have writer's block. I'm weak, I'm human. If stuck, I'll emerge from my space and buttonhole you with fascinating high concept notions we could pin together so good they write themselves, but only after I finish the insurmountable or even shitty idea I'm currently battling. Jonesing to blab yourself, you must shun me. I will decode the wonder of a Faulkner novel in pot boiler sound bites, riveting studies of white trash barn burners and the mercurial Colonel. Taurus run, my catfish antenna have hit rock bottom, trolling classic lit for inspiration, reckless of seeking rural stream of consciousness, beware, I'll probe your writing with stimulating questions, it will hook, once my sail fills, I'll leave you high and dry, unjust, yes, but as the girded Odysseus discovered from his mast, the sirens of conversation are irresistible, I will finish the potato chips, coerce you to bed for talk and touch, seduce you with with hop-head blather and a quick trip to the Norton Simon Museum because we deserve enrichment. I will pick up sandwiches at Oinkster and toast the end of afternoon or morning, spending $5 words and joyous, run-on sentences as I did a million years ago to avoid nursery naps. Rule four is for you, my darling. Arm yourself, be vigilant, and good luck with the writing. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much, and uh, thanks to Andrew for uh, having this event tonight.
2: I really enjoyed reading for you. Thank you. Andrew Nichols is one of the smartest guys in the room, even if the room is a supermarket or the Superdome. Friends, he is that smart. He has a long and impressive CV as a writer for radio, stage, syndicated cartoonists, comedy, and television. He wrote a memoir about, yes, failed television, titled Riley, Valuable Lessons. So it's no surprise that he is lately writing fiction, also touching and funny and smart, with recent humor in McSweeney's Internet Tendency, The Los Angeles Review of Books, and short fiction in Black Clock, Kugelmoss, Moss, and the teacher's research site, Literature for Life. He has, in the brief time I've known him, come to be that person who I try to get as close to as possible, or at least within earshot, so that I can hear him say something smart or funny. So I'm feeling quite lucky tonight to introduce him as a contributor to the Santa Monica Review, Andrew Nichols.
3: Pressure. Uh, thank you, Andrew. Thank you, Skylight. Thank you, everybody. Uh, I got a, uh, well, this is my inaugural reading, by the way, the first time I've ever read um, words for myself that I wrote for myself. Um, uh, and the guy who was the drummer in a band that I was in 30 years ago in Canada, in the small town um, that I grew up in, in which this story is sort of set in, he wrote and said, uh, Let me know if you get to sign any breasts after. I <laughs> so, so there's that misunderstanding of how literary readings go. Anyway. Uh, so that was in a small but in in, um, in keeping in the spirit of that um, the story's in uh, molly i never it 's in two parts uh, the first is lyrical pastoral uh, it 's a twelve year old in a small town second part is um, sex alcohol, and uh, embarrassment so that 's the part i 'm going to read. Uh, it starts, nowadays you hear the wreckage of public things as a bellwether of poverty and moral decay, but we were poorish, not overly moral, we didn't as a rule go blasting holes in stuff. This was the late 1970s, back when a disapproving parent meant there'll be hell to pay for real and copying to something antisocial meant that you were trading a fine line between scoring points with your peers and meeting firsthand the fury of which you'd always suspected your father capable. Um, this guy's 12 years old, he's hanging out behind an abandoned factory with a slingshot and two little friends, Walter and his cute little sister, Molly, um, whose dog bit him, uh, which got them together. A man runs out of the building and accuses him of slingshotting and smashing a glass duck uh, on the roof of the building, which was the sign from when the building was a, a bicycle factory in the 50s, wanting to impress the little girl, Molly, uh, And no, he doesn't say he didn't do it, and he doesn't say he didn't, uh, did. He becomes locally famous for shooting out the duck. Um, After the duck got shot out, I allowed the story to spread because I was 12. It made me sound like something to reckon with. First, only a few friends heard I'd done it, and after a year, though, folks in the Sears Mall were pointing and saying, there's the kid who shot out the duck. Way to go, Simon. Shoot that A.N.W. bear next, will you? (laughs) So skipping ahead now, he's 21, so this is the second half. Two years after high school, I used to get together with four or five guys I knew for Saturday Night Poker or Romoli, which we played around a formed plastic tray of separate coin caches so one of us either cleaned the others out or got too drunk to recognize his pay hands one night Molly buzzed up and came in with Cheryl Mason, the wannabe girlfriend of one of the regulars, Michael Kay Cheryl bounced on her toes when she talked she wore knit tops that made her breasts unavoidable and she laughed a chirpy back catchy laugh at anything even slightly amusing she and Molly knew each other from school but apparently had only recently started hanging out I wouldn't picture them as friends Cheryl was too wild and unpredictable something had happened between her and me a couple of winters back that until that night I believed only she and I knew about. When I walked in the kitchen to dump an empty, Cheryl was bent at the open fridge singing tainted love. She grabbed a beer, shot me a look, and danced out the other end. Whoa, whoa Bram came up behind me and clamped a meaty hand on my shoulder. So he announced, drunk enough to mean only that. Exactly, I said. With girls in the apartment, the guys got stiff back, but other than the slight sexual tension, it was just a drop-in moment, it didn't mean much. Not like today when you need a reason to come by a friend's place unannounced. They said they'd been out together getting chili burgers at the flyby. Cheryl told us Molly was helping her raise the nerve to quit working in her parents' shop. I nodded, trying to get an idea. I hadn't seen Molly in a year. She let her hair grow. She looked like Peggy Lipton from the Mod Squad. I got the impression now she was almost out of her teens. She was willing to take a wild shot at becoming a different sort of person than who she'd been as a child, but wasn't sure who that might be, what her options were. She studied people's faces when they talked to see if they were serious. When she turned quickly, her hair lagged behind, catching on her shoulder, covering her mouth. The girls didn't want to join in cards or watch the game, so someone suggested we play I Never. How it worked was, you listed things you'd never done, and you held your turn as long as you were the only one in the room who'd never done them. Eventually, like every game of this type, it turned to sex and dares or hard feelings and people leaving. We moved it to the living room, a couch and chairs surrounded by our host Greg's records and blue milk crates with their kite-shaped holes. Mike T started. I never took a high school science class Cheryl laughed Walter Gill said you lucky fuck Bram asked how the hell did that happen Mike T's dad who edited the local paper before he started drinking had pressed the chairwoman of the Board of Ed to let Mike take double English in grade 9 which they allowed, letting him skip intro science so he didn't have the prerequisite for grade 10 bio or chem he ended up with triple English and was tutored in science privately he let all the guys know he'd screwed his tutor who was from Quebec okay Okay. Mike T said knuckle-cracking and I've never never smoked pot, to forestall objections, he said, meaning deliberately held a joint or a pipe to my mouth and inhaled, not counting whatever you fuckers might have done to me while I fell asleep in study. I looked around at the eight of us, preparing to fess up to our inexperience, an odd inversion of the custom teen bragging. The drinking age was 19 then, but most in this group had taken a long running jump at it in rec room parties of friends whose parents booted off to their cottages on weekends. Whole generation of adults must have thought all the scotch in town was oddly watery. Sure Cheryl laughed and mimed, smoking up. Molly had her hand up, me neither. Walter nodded confirmation for his sister. She hadn't objected to playing, but it did not seem to me like this was her kind of game. Shit, said Greg, I smoked enough for everybody here. His dad had rented him this apartment, figuring it'd be a good base for Greg to launch his adult life, also to get him out of the house. He was in tight at the LCBO, thanks to his uncle, wrapping bottles in the back, union work at a stratospheric five fifty an hour. Cheryl goofed on dope head. Greg and said, Go, Molly. Molly flicked her eyes towards Cheryl, made a thinking little triangle of her mouth, put her beer bottle in one corner, but didn't tip it up. Come on, Mol, her brother said. You could probably hold your turn for like a week. Everyone laughed. I was facing her in one of the kitchen chairs, dragged over. She sat on the dingy couch next to Cheryl and Michael Kay, who sorted his quarters into stacks on the coffee table. Greg's apartment was on the 10th floor. I could see Lake Ontario, cold and flat, start-fired in the distance where the town lights ended. She started with, I've never personally had a pet. Does a tarantula count? Greg asked. Yes, it counts if you had one anyone I almost said what about Alfie the dog that had bit him but maybe Alfie was her dad's anyway I wanted her to keep talking <laughs> Michael K said did I tell you the time our cat ate a whole onion omelet Walter said quiet dumbass we're playing this <laughs> okay Molly said wiggling in her seat digging deeper into memory um, I never kissed a boy no wait a minute Cheryl laughed and said no big surprise there Greg and Mike T both yelled me neither I never kissed a person of the opposite sex inside a car Cheryl and I avoided each other's eyes. She was helping Michael Kay stack quarters building a shiny castle. No hands went up. Does my mom count? Bram asked. Romantically, Molly clarified. She picked up the label on her beer bottle. Supposedly if you could get off in one piece that meant you were virgin. How about leaning on a car? Greg asked. Or lying on the hood of one? Or inside a car? Molly repeated. We're looking for what we haven't done. Not bragging about what we have, right? She looked at me. I nodded and drew on my Molson. Okay then, she said, um, I've never cheated on a test. Mike T's hand went up. I thought that was a safe one, so I raised mine, too. Michael K called bullshit and all three of us, and Cheryl laughed and said, seriously? Some of us don't need to cheat, Mike T told her. Walter called polygraph. Mike turned his alert face to me. How's it work when there's more than one? Clockwise, I said. I'm out, Walter said. I've done too much of everything. Don't quit, Cheryl Lurge. Don't be a puss. She laughed and bounced like the good part was coming up. Mike T. steepled his fingers. I've never... Hitting anyone, including slapping. He had no brothers or sisters. I whacked Walter the first week I knew him for busting the elastic on a wind-up plane. I already told him couldn't take more than 70 turns. How about when you were a baby, Molly asked. A conscious hit or slap or punch, Mike T said. Deliberate aggression, provoked or not. Cheryl scattered his scaffolded coins and laughed, leaning sideways into him on the couch like they were co-anchoring a drunken news show. Molly picked up a brocaded cushion, set it on her lap, and slid away from them. Still Mike's turn, she prompted. I looked at the pillow, the unscuffed knees of her jeans. I never swam in the public pool, he said. I wasn't sure. I didn't think Mike T. could swim. In day camp when we were 10, someone stepped on a wasp nest once during a watermelon hunt. The counselors yelled for us to go into the river fast. Now he was the only one who took off for the trees. I have never... Flossed my teeth, he said, pulling down his lower lip. Cheryl laughed with an ooh. Molly said, you have never flossed, my dad says. It erodes the gums. That's crazy, it strengthens your gums. I know, we're Greek, I never started. My family wasn't big into dental hygiene, but this was not a hill I wanted to take. Molly guzzled her beer, shaking her head at Mike's neglect. She spilled some and oopsed brushing the cushion in her lap, someone's gonna need a ride home, Dowie Bram, sing song, giving me a meaningful look from the Ottoman. Mike T said he'd never heard his parents having sex, no takers. Bram said he could tell us stories. Also, Mike T said he'd never watched an episode of Bonanza, Greg asked, so what'd you do while your parents are fucking? Molly raised a hand, said, I don't like westerns, and it was back to her while Cheryl bellowed the theme song and hammered Michael Kay's leg for him to join in. Molly took another drink, daring herself to it with big white eyes, and glanced at me. I felt a warmth in my shoulders and looked somewhere between her and Cheryl, as if preparing for my turn. I thought about her volleyball picture. I never, she said, then had a fit of giggles that sounded prepared, like she was exaggerating her inebriety. The guys got quiet. I never, Put my finger on a knot so someone could tie a bow. Groans. Greg asked, what the hell kind of never was that? We tasted kissing. The guys were expecting things confessional to turn loinward. Molly said faux primly pointy fingers on her knees. Her mom had a trick for bows that did not require assistance. I thought of her yellow dress with the doily edges. It went around for 20 minutes. I'd never walked a dog, but neither had Bram. Molly had never seen a meteor or flown a kite Michael Kay tried to tell us he'd never worn headphones but Bram said about that time at Susan Perringer's party on her parents farmland and he said oh yeah shit how come you remember that you were so wasted you went home in Perry shack's trunk four of us had never had a passport Greg and Walter had never seen The Wizard of Oz Walter and I had never tasted gin the dog ass smell of it alone made me want to puke Greg started on something about baby powder I had to remind him the qualifying sense was not allowed it had to be never Walter being too drunk even to play Ramoli, and now he lay under the coffee table making different hand shapes that fit over his face. Bram had never thrown a boomerang, but neither had Molly, so with Walter out of the circle, it was his sister's turn. I never, oh God, I don't want to use that one. Oh Jesus, Molly, just use it. Cheryl's hand prospected Michael Kay's lap for a wayward coin. He upended a beer while cleaning an ear with one finger. He seemed to have become totally unawareless. Come on, Walter urged his sister from flat on his back. You've got to drive. He whacked her shin. She told him to shut up. She was playing this. Mike T got up and announced that was it for him. Good night. He was a go homer. Cheryl called him a puss. He replied, it required one to recognize one. Let me think. I never. Cheryl groaned in a get on with it way. Molly got nettled and said, What? Cheryl said, Jesus Christ, you just use the big one you're saving. And what did the rest of us want to bet? It'd have the word boy in it. There were three cute guys at a table in the flyby. by Cheryl said. Their table had a mustard, and ours didn't. But of course, no way Molly would go over and ask if we could have theirs. Because we didn't need mustard, Molly said emphatically. Oh, yeah, yeah, Walter yodeled from under the table. Hey, I don't care, Cheryl said. Just, you know, you were the one staring at them. I wasn't staring. My chair was facing their way. No way to extricate herself from this without coming off as straight-laced. Whatever you say. If you thought they were so cute with all your obvious twisting around to look at them, why didn't you go over? Molly spoke to the ceiling, shaking her head like, why does she have to put up with this foolishness? Stare, stare, Cheryl said, goofing her eyes out. Oh, that's right, I forgot. You're way too cool. Oh, I'm cool. Oh, what an insult. Oh, wow. Little Miss Cool, Molly said, popping your boobs out like everyone cares. Oh, well, still my turn, right? Cheryl let a fistful of quarters drop into Michael Kay's lap. You know why you can't think of something that's interesting that you haven't done? It isn't because you've actually, oh my God, done it. It's because you can't imagine what normal people even do while you're sitting at home knitting or doing crosswords in Latin, whatever it is you do in your little pink girly dream room. Molly took a swaying swig, then sat up straight with the bottle primed on her knee. She hard stared Cheryl with her chin high and wobbling. Okay then, here's one. I never fucked Simon, then dumped him the next day like the big slut that you are. I'll stop there.
1: you're a
2: tease <laughs> I totally miss under stood or didn't somehow at first get the profound in the whimsical, fun, serious, put-on polemics and idiom riot of Ryan Ridge's work, and to my everlasting shame, I actually declined part of a novel he was working on. I'm so grateful for Second Chances as when I devoured his excellent short story collection Hunters and Gamblers when I got it, finally, silly me. Think Donald Bartholomew for starters, and add an intoxicating blend of Ridge's swamp-infested idiomatic Americana by way of narration by Kurt Vonnegut or Hunter S. Thompson. And, well, I should have understood that Ridge was doing just exactly what he does, and so vividly, experientially, and poetically. I'm now a big fan and looking forward to more after his poetry collection, Ox, and the chapbooks, Hey, It's American, and 22nd Century Man. You can read his work at Tin House, McSweeney's Small Chair, the Southern California Review, Mississippi Review, Los Angeles Review, Hobart, Consequence, and more. He's also managing editor at Juke Magazine and I'm hoping he accepts my apology and adds me to the number one spot in membership of his fan club, Ryan Ridge. Thank you
4: Andrew. Okay. Hey, I I should preface this. I'm gonna read six pieces and uh, they're from a collaborative project. So about a year ago, I'd say from roughly September of 20, what what year are we? 2013, right now? Yeah. From 2012, September 2012 to September 2013, I was collaborating with a Massachusetts writer named Mel Bosworth. He'd write one, I'd write one back, and he'd write one, I'd write one back. I think we wrote about 250 of these suckers, and uh, we kept 144. And Andrew was kind enough to uh, take 12 for the Santa Monica Review. So I'm going to read six tonight. This first one's called Moat. We lived in the dunes and my father was convinced he could build an engine that ran on seaweed. Mom was determined to breed a banana small enough for sea monkeys to eat. My sister, the ever achiever, applied to Yale University and went on to become the first woman admitted to the Skull and Bones Society. Much later, when Dad perfected his patented weed eater engine, my sister and her heavy friends came and shut him down. He hasn't been the same since, but Mom's micro-bananas are ripening nicely beneath the scopes. Me, I've turned this old dune into the replica of the Tower of London. Tomorrow we install the moat. This next one's called, The House Always Wins. (laughs) The House Always Wins. The first thing they taught me in the Witness Protection Program was how to mind my own business. The second thing that taught me was how to never second-guess my second choices. I imparted this wisdom to the boys at the kitchen table. Did you hear that, Will? I mean, Tom. Did you hear that, kids? (laughs) I stood swiveling back and forth from child to child, finger-pointing fake pistols in the air. The pressure was getting to me. I needed guts. I needed conviction. I needed a dark beer, a real beard, and a semi-automatic. The boys, they needed to finish their oatmeal and get to school. Then someone tossed a brick through the kitchen window, and I jumped so high I almost glimpsed God's designer sandals. The brick was wrapped in a note that read, You will die a happy life. I'd seen enough. I rewrapped the brick and tossed it back out the broken window. There's such awful people out there, I told the boys, as I wiped their tears and combed their hair. There's such awful and wonderful things in this world, things we should probably never see. With that, I brushed their eyes closed with my fingers, cocooned them in a gauze of camouflage, and fastened them them to my legs. I said, you comfortable? My left leg, Well, Yeah. My right leg, Tom? What? Yeah. (laughs) Then I strapped every pellet gun I owned to my vest. It was time to see the world again. It was time to face the music. It was was time to show my bookie I hadn't busted. It was time to show this time I was holding a house full of love. This one's called The Events As They Unfolded. They found the car stripped in the desert. They found you stripping in a dive just outside of Tucson. They told me you looked good as ever. They told me I could come along, but I'd have to hang back with Hector. He was their technician. I get to see it all go down on a tiny monitor, but the monitor in question turned out to offer an unexceptional view. In fact, it offered no view at all, as it was an analog baby monitor. (laughs) According to Hector, however, if I closed my eyes and listened, I'd have a play-by-play of the events as they unfolded. The problem was, when I closed them, all I heard was monitor static and tires. And when I opened them, all I saw was taillights canceled by the six o'clock sun. This is called, uh, The Poet Addresses a Proud Nation. Sorry for those P's, lots of P's in these, Uh, pieces. Everywhere ash and Christmas lights. No, you're doing it wrong, you said. I said, who the hell knows how to tie a bow tie anymore? And he leaned in and tied it for me, the trails from your lip cigarette forming stately wisp around your nostrils. I shook your shaking hand and thanked you. So this is it, I said. It's time. You said, it's time and time as always, per aspera ad astra. I attempted to wrap my mind around it, but failed as usual, he said, We will go on, continuing to continually continue. But you trailed off as the television cameras began rolling. I rolled my eyes as you took the stage in your camouflage suit, cigarette extinguished, but not quite. It was so damn cold that night in the outdoor amphitheater that it looked like you were still smoking after the fact. My heart beat boxed badly as you leaned into the microphone and said, My fellow countrymen and women, I regret to inform you that I don't have enough middle fingers for you all. (laughs) And later, after your speech, when they shot us in the front of our throats, I saw stars, stars everywhere, stars falling everywhere on everyone. Everyone was a star and nothing is real. This uh, next one's called Hot Date with History. I dozed in the lime green backseat of dad's Chrysler New Yorker, my face tight with whiskey. My father would be back any minute, or so he said. He needed to see a man about the future. I watched the sunset melt behind a candle factory. The moon rose and fell and dropped into the trees. I passed the time with some pills until I passed out. Dad returned at dawn holding a box of condoms and a TV antenna. I said, Jesus, you took forever. What's all that all about? He held up the antenna. Son, this is the final piece of the time machine. He shook the condoms. And these little guys... These little guys are going to fix it to where you and your sisters never happened. He tossed me the keys. Come up here and drive, he said. I've got a hot day with history, my boy. I need rest. I need sleep. All right. All right. And this last one's called Vanishing Act. Your water broke backstage. Behind the curtain, the crowd roared. He said we still had enough time to do the show, so we did the show. We started with the flaming sword cabinet bit and transitioned into the card tricks. And then I escaped from a straight jacket while you juggled kitchen knives in the corner. And for my next trick, I said, I saw a woman in half. Not just any woman, a pregnant woman. You lay flat on the table. I fired up the circular saw. You screamed and screamed. This wasn't part of the act. The crowd gasped. I stopped the saw and walked around to your legs and lifted your skirt. Oh, I I see. I'm going to need a volunteer from the audience ASAP. Is there a doctor in the house? She's having a baby. A little help. A man leapt on the stage and told you to breathe. He said, just breathe. He said, you're doing fine. He said, it's crowning. He said, here it comes. He said, congratulations. It's a girl. The crowd went wild. I fired up the circular saw. Cut the cord. Handed you the baby. The crowd went wilder. Then I fired up a cigar and disappeared. Years later, you told me that was my worst trick. (laughs) Thanks uh, to to Skylight and uh, Andrew, do you want to talk about this?
2: Thank you readers, thank you audience, thank you Skylight, and there's more wine refreshments. Thank you.